Hello, guys, or ladies, whoever's listening. Um, my name is Dean Lexer, right? <laughs> I just, I actually just got up. It's uh, 4 p.m. on on a Sunday, Sunday the 6th of February, and I am. I was really dead tired today. I don't know why. I felt kind of cold. I felt a bit icky a bit ugh, disgusted by the weather uh, conditions we have right now because it's it's raining outside and it's too cold, it's humid, and I don't feel quite happy about that. It's not exactly the type of weather that I enjoy if I am planning on going on a bike tour again. But, you know, maybe I should skip bike touring. I don't want to catch a cold out there. Hmm. I bought myself... Uh, I bought myself a more expensive, uh, more expensive bottle of a Primitivo v- a wine from Italy that is surprisingly fruitful, yet not really sweet. It just tastes like um, a very wide, um, I don't even know how to, how to begin. I'm not really awake, I'm sorry. It's just a very fulfilling, fruitful taste that would match pretty much any meal that I can think of. So, yeah. I took a nap today, which is something I rarely do. I don't know. I think I needed it somehow. I was lying in bed in front of my uh, my home silver screen and projected onto the screen two episodes of the old Twilight show, you know, the, the Twilight Zone from the 50s. And um, talking about that stuff, I noticed that I'm really falling in love with the 50s a a little bit, a bit more than I uh, imagined. I started buying comic books from the 1950s that was, uh, which were usually published by the EC Comics in America. Um, Some of them I have bought uh, previously before. I think half a year ago I spent 100 bucks on a very pristine, good condition of a book, um, hardcover edition of reprints of the 1950s science fiction stories of the EC comics in that time. I think they were from 1953. And just recently, I I saw another hardcover issue of sci-fi and horror stories from 1950 and 51 from the EC comics, in German this time, however. Also... Uh, hardcover and really good condition, not as good as the other ones, but still tremendously well preserved um, with fascinating drawings and styles that I really sort of missed, I suppose. The way they were just depicting uh, the visuals of men and women at the time and the way they depicted science fiction, this cheesiness, you know, the, the, the corny, cheesy aspect of alien fantasies and what planets might look like if they are inhabitable in our solar system, which obviously they're not, but they didn't know at the time, so they kept fantasizing about what if, you know, and coming up with very bizarre, uh, completely ludicrous stories that are fun to read, and you would never really want to see them as as a film. But in comic book form, they were just uh, spectacular. And I think these books sort of inspired, or must have at least inspired, 
Rob Serling to create the Twilight Zone afterwards. I'm not sure if he ever was involved with the comics in any form, but I do believe that he was a nut for this kind of stuff. And I assume he must have had somehow access to these comics and read them occasionally, maybe in his in his younger days before actually making that TV show in 1959, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, season two I started, which debuts the iconic uh, string melody that we all, you know, this din, 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 that we all know and love from, from the show. And it <laughs> became a household name, sort of. The first season didn't have that. It was just more orchestral, I think, in its uh, composition and didn't really mean much to most people. It didn't, it had nothing iconic or um, substantial that would actually be a keynote to the show underlining the uh, sci-fi and fantasy elements or the mysterious at least right and yeah well i've been digging into these books uh, a bit i'm really enjoying the artwork there and um, i can't help but smile and grin at some of the stories but they're really beautiful if you have the chance and you're interested in comic books at least a little bit not maybe as much as i am but if you want to see some interesting artwork that was done in the 50s, I got to tell you, I don't care what people say about the, the dynamic uh, frame-breaking drawing techniques of Marvel and DC from the 1980s. Uh, the 50s were the true golden era of comics back then, I think. And it, they looked a lot more sophisticated and interesting in their design and... and uh, formulated inking techniques of the artists than anything I've seen from DC and, and, and Marvel at the time, you know. So um, I think that the best days of Marvel began with the 70s, reaching through the 80s, conveying great stories, while in the 90s they were artistically maybe a bit more free and they could do whatever they wanted, but the stories lacked in, in quality, at least that's what most people seem to be aware of and, you know, seem to share the same kind of idea. Well, I think um, the comic book industry took a, took a turn in, in the 2000s in trying to create more, um, more suspenseful, serious tones in, in storytelling to actually come up with the term graphic novel instead of just uh, calling them comic books. It doesn't really matter what you call them. It's a, it is a story in, in, in drawn picture format. That's it. It doesn't. I don't think calling a comic book graphic novel is really the term that gives it more quality. If if the book is good, the book is good. It doesn't matter what you call it. But whatever. You know, it's just my own philosophy. While I'm sitting here, I was also uh, reading a part of the Spencer Bright biography of Peter Gabriel to get back in time with my personal claim, my personal belief, I think Peter Gabriel invented stage diving, or at least what he refined and helped to move and craft forward is crowd surfing. Because uh, during the early 80s, when he was being watched, not filmed, I think it was never filmed, but it was, uh, it was seen and reported on that during the third album, uh, which I touched uh, last time, during the third album when he 
uh, performed Games Without Frontiers, he supposedly was standing in a cross-like position towards the, the audience at stage's end and falling backwards into the audience, being catched and carried around. So um, I think it's fair to say that he was partially, accidentally the inventor of such things because way before that, during the, I think, 1970 or 71, I think 1970, uh, there was an incident where he um, performed in the old Genesis band where he uh, got so ecstatic on stage and really super excited about some set piece. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I do remember that he was diving straight forward into the audience in his ecstasy. And he flattened three people and fell so clumsily on his... I'm not sure which leg it was. He fell so clumsy that he broke his foot. And afterwards, when the foot got broken, he was transported to a hospital. And the doctors there did a poor performance of trying to secure his leg somehow and, you know, repositioning it to, to make it heal because it didn't heal very well and he had more pain and suffered from it. So they, they looked for a private doctor, a specialist in this regard, who actually had to re-break his leg and to reposition it to make it heal properly. So that was a painful, agonizing moment in his life, I suppose. But um, that stage dive that he did is the beginning of everything, in, in my opinion. I don't think I've heard anyone else doing that at the time. And of course it was more... Um, you know, a thoughtless act and, and not really planned well. Otherwise, you know, the audience might have said, okay, we can try this. But um, he just did it out of out of spite or ecstasy, like I said. Not drugs, but just being uh, super excited out of his mind, enthusiastic about performing on stage and just losing it, I suppose. And afterwards, it's like he uh, still wanted to be reconnected to the crowd with an, an, an instant like that. Oh yeah, in case you've heard the, the, the peeping in the background, I'm not sure if the microphone picked that up. My dryer is finished and I got my clothes back. Um, I'll just snap in a short break, refill my wine glass, and continue talking about the fourth album of Peter Gabriel. I'll be right back. I have to stand up again. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm back. I'm back. Thank God for the pause button. So, wait, 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 let me get a drink here first. Oh, I need a sip. Mm -hmm. Man, this wine is really exceptionally good. I'm not a pro in, in terms of wine, but I'm getting there, I suppose. The more practice I, I have, the more I can evaluate uh, good wine products and... Um, give anyone advice if you want to kill yourself you do it right um never mind uh the fourth album yeah it's about time that we talk about this one because uh his fourth album is the one setting up the tone for the future not only the tone but giving him i think access to wonderful techniques and technology that would give a tone and a scent of his music, his his possibilities and style of making music by combining 
let's say, uh, world music elements to electronics and mix it up to become a completely different Western uh, type of music or at least Western-influenced type of music with the influence of world music, if that makes any sense at all. Um, why he refused to take another album title eludes me. I have to reread that, but I'm not that deep into the uh, biography book right now. I don't know if I will have the time later on. I have a lot to do. But I have a vacation coming up. So I think if I can get my head straight and if I'm sober enough, I might find my way back to the microphone and tell you more about the uh, next album that I want to talk about. Uh, the the all-time favorite of so many fans and marking um, superstar status with the So album, his fifth album. But that's for another time because there's a lot to talk about on that one, especially when it comes to... Uh, personal preferences and experiences and the emotional meaning in those uh, separate songs, what the entire album means to me. And of course, music video wise, there's a lot to cover, at least uh, hopefully enough information that I could give you that makes sense. And overall, uh, just establishing the, the peak and the height of his career honestly took place after this album got surfaced, after this album got sold. And it got sold over 10 million times, as far as I can tell. And the fourth album here got sold. I mean, just not that money uh, is, is the meaning of everything in life, but it does reflect a certain amount of success when it comes to how many records you sell. Because still, at the time, selling records was the business in the end, not just going on stage and performing live. But the more records you sold, the better your, your reputation was as an artist by proving that your material could find an audience and that you got supported either way. So in France, um, I'm not sure why, but there was also, um, there should be information on where the album got sold properly uh, during, during uh, parts of Europe. And uh, all I got here is, you know, the album got sold over 155,000 times. 155,000 times in France. Only 28,000 times in Japan. Well, I mean, it's Japan. After all, in the 80s, they were not very too keen on uh, Western music, I think. They, were, they had different things to take care of, and they were most likely paying more attention to uh, their comic book industry than uh, rock and roll from other countries. Uh, then Canada with... Uh, uh, unfortunately, only 100,000, but that's probably because less people live in Canada, which is something that people like to forget. There's no one there, you know, just a couple of bears, and you see occasionally a man and a woman walking around. Mm. Yeah, sorry. It's just a great one. <laughs> um, it received... It was well-received in America. The album got sold 500,000 times. And, um, of course, in Great Britain, there was also some, some positive feedback, but not as much. And he only... Uh, if, if this information is accurate, the album got sold roughly 100,000 times. So, above all, um, officially 800,000... 883,000 bucks 
uh, times. Where was it sold? Not, 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 in, <laughs> not in money currency. So we're pretty shy uh, from a million. We haven't gotten that close, nor did, did Peter. But uh, the amazing thing about this album is it got much attention, basically because of uh, his success for the song Shock the Monkey, which was his first funky soul poppy sound, I think, to mark his, his approach into uh, more mainstream media, even though Shock the Monkey is not really mainstream. Uh, nor is any other song on the album, to be honest. Um, I think, if anything at all, the album So is more mainstream than anything else he ever touched. But uh, that's just being realistic by the amount of success that this album had and still remains one of the most successful albums ever sold. Um, the fourth album, well, where should I start? We all know the facts that... Uh, Peter, uh, people like Tony Levin still playing the bass. Uh, Larry Fast and David Rhodes are still on board. John Ellis, uh, somebody I don't even know. I, I think most people don't even know who that is. He plays guitar. His wife, Jill uh, Gabriel, uh, does some background singing as well, some vocal performances here. Uh, a guy named Roberto Laneri? La, La Sorry, I'm not good with names. Laneri is playing saxophone. Stephen Payne, Fairlight. Peter Hamill singing. Uh, David Lord does the Mog. More key instruments and the Fairlight as well. Morris Pert in, uh, plays Tim Bales, per percussion and flute. Wonderful. What else have we got? Of course, Peter does his own thing vocal-wise, then the percussion, some key instruments as well, some keyboards and... The Fairlight CMI. Uh, there's a, there's Jerry Marotta playing the drums again. No Phil Collins here. And the um, the Ecom Dance Company does um, African percussion on a song, and I'm unable to tell you which one it is. Beyond that. Um, the album was produced by Peter Gabriel himself and David Lord. And the quality of this album is remarkably better, I would say, than the three albums before that. By that I mean it's, it's still very experimental, but it doesn't jump too much into different musical worlds at the same time. It doesn't experiment too much in terms of sound. It takes something that is uh, important. There is an, an the, the Fairlight, if I'm not mistaken, the Fairlight was supposed to be the sampling machine, which was the first time that Gabriel was able to record things. Um, like, there is a video actually that you could watch on YouTube um, where if I remember correctly, it took, they went to a garbage site Gar garbage, sorry, garbage disposal site, and looked for stuff to break and to cause some weary, uh, awkward sound effects that they could later on manipulate on the Fairlight. And one of those sounds were, for example, a TV screen being busted, where he's holding up an, an exhaustion pipe, I think, and just slamming it 
onto uh, the screen until it breaks. And they did stuff like that. And, I, and some of the effects that, that they used sounded good for songs like uh, Shock the Monkey or um, uh, things, um, tracks like The Rhythm of the Heat, which is the, the first track of the album. The Rhythm of the Heat is obviously a very, very world music heavy track, at least in terms of the beat, the sound of it all, the instruments being used and uh, the African background to that, at least musically connected. And when I heard that the first time, I was really surprised. I didn't know exactly what to expect when I bought the album. I had no idea what was on it. I knew that Chalk the Monkey was on it because I had the 16 Golden Grades before that and loved the track, obviously, but because of its sound and distinct... I'm not sure how to put that. It's it's almost on some level a bit too uh, too fake in terms of I'm not trying to trash trash the song here, but it doesn't sound really like a rock song or anything else in that regard. It sounds different, and that is something that makes the album great by just being completely different from the previous album and yet still following Gabriel's tone and style in further development, if you will. I need more wine, I'm sorry. Mm. So, when I heard Rhythm of the Heat, I was amazed, like I said. The beat here, uh, the drums being used, I can't even tell you what it is, probably percussion. It's uh, magnificent to, f to, to listen to the beginning of, of the song exploding in, an, in a very emotional event as if you would be high on something and then dancing to the rhythm and the beat of the song or at least moving accordingly to it or in any way you think sees fit, any way you desire to become one with that universe. And it feels like you're trying to, to speak a different language when you when you're so, sort of in a uh, in a trance of sorts in in music productions like this, or at least in exploring the music and listening to it, uh, just like any other music style that you would fall into, uh, especially electronic wise, when you listen to trance and rave and and um, other uh, repetitive music styles. I mean, techno, for example, is very repetitive. It just l relies on loops in the end. And, uh, I mean, we could argue that it's maybe not the case, but if everything is built up electronically, you have an, an enormous amount of freedom how to craft your song and what it is that you want from it or what it is that you want to hear and feel in the end. And the choices are limitless what you could do with electronics, especially these days. And I'm not a music uh, a producer or, or... I don't craft music myself. I've, I haven't tried to actually do a track. I'm still looking forward to find the time to actually uh, try my own beats and stuff like that, but I just can't get around to it with everything I'm doing right now anyway, and, you know, with, with school and work and all that. So I have to put that on a park bench in the meantime until I get to it. But I know, just logically speaking, that you have an enormous amount of freedom to choose 
your sounds and your style, whatever it is. You can manipulate just fucking anything. And if you create, um, let's say, a very atmospheric piece that puts you in some sort of trance, for example, uh, the beat and the ongoing rhythm of Rhythm of the Heat, or uh, the follow-up song, San Jacinto, um, it, you can actually lay back and just relax. and just uh, You can be, become emotionally invested and involved in these tracks, but you can also sit back and just be mesmerized by their hypnotic capabilities, which is one of the reasons why I like listening to songs. Um, before I continue, this album was released in 1982. And... It was also filmed. There was a uh, Peter Plays Live album, which I think I could cover partially within this uh, this personal emotional review, if you will, talking about this. Um, a lot of positive things have sprung from the fourth album because of his um, increasing success in the music business and becoming his own thing and his own name. Uh, the the live concert was recorded, at least audio-wise. I think it was recorded via video somehow, but um, there is no official footage anywhere to be found from this gig. And I, I was told that they did not record it on video professionally, but I think somebody did, maybe amateurs, but there must be some kind of footage out there and it's very hard to find i found some poor quality images on youtube ones uh footage that depicts gabriel being on stage in his shock the monkey uh, outfit and swinging i think over the stages using a rope or something just um making a very interesting entrance to to <laughs> this universe that he created so that's kind of cool. And there's also, you know, reports of that he started diving down into the crowd once again when the song Lay Your Hands On Me gets played, which is sort of a an elonged track from the third album, Social Critical in, in some sense, and of course a self-critical by um, addressing addressing issues that do not fit on the fourth album per se, but they would fit on a different f form of the third album, I suppose, or at least uh, if, if the record had more room to spare, they would probably put that on there. But I suppose he did that song sometime later when the third album got, got published. Album, I think it has, to put it in a, in a specific way of, of, of explaining it, this album is not a concept album. I would absolutely differ from that. Um, the Rhythm of the Heat is obviously... I think, if, if anything at all, this album is just another experimental approach in developing something that wasn't there before. Again, in Peter's uh, fight to be different and not be compared to other artists, because why would you want that, right? And he always had, you know, uh, I, I do remember reading in, in the book that he always had a bad time, or let's say a, a worse experience being in the group, because he always had this drive to change something, to try new things, to be different, to experiment. 
to explore in musical, outside of musical boundaries, to explore new things, to add that to the, the actual product that they were building. And I, I do remember reading that the band was not very keen on his influence. And, well, I think his, his stubborn, thick-skulled attitude towards this by being persistent and saying, we got to do this, we got to try this, it's beautiful. And I do agree that it is always better to keep exploring and, and experimenting. Otherwise, real progress cannot be made. Which is why I always say that, you know, during the area of Genesis and with Phil Collins, there is not really progress anywhere in the music quality, for real. It's really just mainstream-based, mainstream-focused, looking to make a good cash grab by creating lyrics, catchy lyrics, that would make it into onto the radio to get played, to be, you know, more successful, getting more money, getting more chicks, I suppose, and just uh, flat, flattering your own ego. And I get that. Many bands do that. And I do think Gabriel wanted a part of that as well for his his career. Obviously showing off a, sh- a sort of uh, um, new established success after the So album. And during that time, like I said, that was the peak of his career to be uh, really gigantic at the time. And um, of course, other artists were more successful and and uh, sold, I guess, a lot more more records. I could compare that to Sting, and we would see probably a significant um, difference between the two, mm. especially when it comes to selling albums, yet alone Phil Collins and his Genesis career. I mean, they're like, uh, money-wise and success-wise, worlds apart. But, you know, still, there is like this this experimental niche rock music universe that Gabriel created for himself to be himself and to keep exploring what he could actually pull out of his hat as a sound musician or sound uh, designer, as I'd like to say. And I think the fourth album is, um, is evidence to this kind of development, the way he was trying to push himself forward by trying new things. Um, Sanya Sinto is no exception. It's, it really sounds like a uh, an Indian folk song almost, where uh, it's 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 really hard to tell for me where he actually got the inspiration from to get to to do that song. Um, Sanya Sinto is a mountain, uh, which uh, the song is probably loosely based on, but it's also about fear of. Um, people being suppressed by the Western society, like, you know, the, the Aborigines of, of America, the, the true Indians who were there first and probably had fears of being cast away or something from the modernizing, you know, ever-growing Western society with all their capitalism, their jobs and their cars and all that. It's just, it's... Um, it's an interesting song. You should listen to it. It's one of the most powerful songs that he ever made. Sanya Sinto is a, is a song being repeatedly performed on stage, uh, taking me into trance every time when I listen to it. And all of his magic never got lost. It never got dented. It's still a, a top song to perform. And I think I understand why fans love to get back to this track every so often. And I have to, 
I'm not sure right now from the top of my, my memory, at the top of my head, but I think the song is also added to the 16 Golden Greats album. I think it runs right after uh, Salisbury Hill, if I'm not mistaken, but I have to keep looking on into that. We'll get back to that album anyway at some point because of the piano version of uh, Here Comes the Flood and Shaking the Tree, which is also in a very important song piece uh, displaying women's rights a bit more, I would say, shedding light on that topic of equality. And many other things that just uh, are very important, I think, to talk about. It's something that has become more of an issue today than ever before, but with a different, mm, a different taste in, in 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 my mouth. I would say, I don't think that the way it's being handled and dealt today is a very wise choice, especially uh, poorly broadcasted and poorly explained. Just trying to heat the flame with more gasoline instead of actually looking for closure and understanding. But that's a different issue. That is a social dilemma that we will still suffer from years from now. What I can tell you still, uh, I'd like to just jump over these, these songs real, real quickly. Um, there is the, the third track is I Have the Touch, which um, I don't think is all such a bad song overall, but it's not catchy enough, in my opinion, to be called um, a golden great for the Gabriel uh, record collection. It's it's an important song by... Uh, I'm not sure what the song is necessarily about, but it's, of course, more of finding contact and connections, social contacts and connections, to other people, um, maybe feeling more whole if if you're actually connected to more people and just being by yourself and living in solitude like I do, <laughs> obviously, you know. But um, from from the style and the spunk of the song, I don't think that it got the amount of attention that Gabriel wanted because in, in other records, especially uh, singles that got released, you find this song, a remixed version of that song, pretty often. You find the, I think it's the 85 mix or something. I forgot what it's called. But you find this mix everywhere. It's like he's trying to advertise the song more often, being very stubborn about it. And you have to listen to the track. You have to listen to the track. Um, I Have the Touch is okay. It's not my my favorite by far on the album. Um, the Family and the Fishing Net is probably the most obscure song on the album, um, to be honest, I really have no clue what that song is about. When I heard it the first time, I have to be honest, I didn't like it. I thought it was too weird to be considered um, album-worthy, being me as a naive teenager, of course. And the only thing I can think of that makes somehow sense is depicting an, an unhealthy relationship during marriage, like moi, my own experiences there, and um, showing the side effects of a, a non-working relationship, you know, the, uh, the grinding side effects that destroy you slowly and eat you up. That is what I could, could think of the family and the fishing that is supposedly talking about. Hmm. It feels like the song is trying to depict or craft a universe where you see a fake persona 
a fake, superficial outside world of a couple that is completely dying on the inside. Oh, I know what that feels like, believe me. So, yeah, I mean, um, it's too weird. I had to listen to the song five times at least to get, uh, to get a hook out of it. And today, I still listen to the song in my car sometimes. It's, it's still, um, it somehow got to me. It's not an earworm, but it's still, um, because of its weirdness, it becomes ultimately very cool and unique. And it is probably one of the more unique songs he ever made throughout his career. But it's not the best song, at least not for me personally, but it's still a very fascinating track that you should listen to if you want to hear weird, obscure, theatrical performances on a song. Then you have, of course, number five is Shock the Monkey, which is a song I can reflect and relate to personally the most on the album, not because of its... um, mainstream properties and poppiness of the song, but because the song deals about the topic of, um, what? Now I lost that line in my head? Fuck's sake. Either I am not drunk enough to talk about it, or I have to get get back to bed and sleep another two hours. It's about jealousy, for fuck's sake. The, uh, the, the song is dealing with jealousy, talking about jealousy and the effects that it does to us by making us completely crazy and lose our minds. And yes, it happens to all of us, and I think it's important to talk about these things and make music about it is even more genius. Because I think it reflects more of the emotional state that we're in, instead of instead of just talking about it by saying, hey, you know what, I got jealous because of this and that, and I think you're spending too much time with that person, or you're flirting with uh, someone that I really do not appreciate. I feel like I'm losing someone. And the song is really graphically putting that situation into a much more emotional state and picture. Uh, More so than I think anyone could say, really, with words. Maybe in poetry, okay, but putting it in a a song. Especially, like, you know, um, lines lines from from the lyrics, like, uh, you throw your pearls before the shrine that makes the monkey blind. If that is not really something that you would feel in terms of jealousy that would make you feel almost rage at some point, then I don't know what is. And I've been there. You know, I had a a girlfriend once, just to push that in. My first real uh, relationship with uh, a woman that I tried to follow a bit more seriously for three years when I was in my early 20s. And um, I remember we went out to a party where I, at least at the time in my my, my stage, um, I didn't fit in there. I didn't feel welcome. I didn't feel, of course I was welcome. Nobody really cared who I was in the end. But there was no negativity uh, throughout that group very much. But, um, you know, I, I still didn't feel like I would fit in. It's not the world that I wanted. And it was it was an interesting experience. And I wished that I would have had a more, um, a more peaceful approach to that topic. And I wasn't really a person who likes going out. I still don't like going out very much. But at the time where I think I should have enjoyed myself more and I wasn't emotionally capable of letting go, um, that was one of those moments where I experienced my first real uh, 
angry, jealous moment. And in parts, I would say it's almost uh, my girlfriend's fault because she was dressed beautifully. Not that that's wrong. Of course, she can't dress like that. It's perfectly fine. But she was looking for attention aside from mine. And I do remember that there was a guy, um, not his type, uh, not not her type, I mean, uh, much older. He was a, a, quite a heavy dude, maybe around his 50s, and, you know, trying to get contact to her somehow to make her aware of his existence. And he was so large, you could not really overlook him. And during the party, which was taking place on a boat, by the way, there was mostly uh, club music and, and techno music being played there, electronic music, let's put it that way, and with, you know, neon lights and big floodlights and, and uh, great speakers being built into the boat. It was an interesting experience to hear music on that boat while just, you know, uh, uh, driving over a river and uh, or floating over a river would be maybe the, the proper way to say that. And I remember being depressed on that boat and I didn't know exactly how to deal with the situation watching my girlfriend being hit on. Now, I could have, of course, go over there and do something about that by going in between them, but I saw a certain form of happiness and joy in her eyes and I knew that she liked the attention. And that's when I knew that I wasn't enough that I was never enough, that she was looking for something else, something different. So I stepped away from that and just felt jealous rage, really depressed about that. And I just wanted to leave the boat and I thought, you know what, fuck you, I, I don't need this shit. I don't have to, I wasn't ready to share that woman with anyone. Why should I? You know, I was in my, in my mind, in my naive state, she was mine, but she didn't behave like she was mine. She behaved like she was open for everyone else. So I do, re I do remember that this guy was trying to touch her legs and stuff like that, and she enjoyed it. She liked the attention, uh, up to a point where it was enough, but um, that was like somebody stabbing a knife in my heart and just, you know, um, and everyone else would say, stop that. You know, I'm, I'm here with my boyfriend. I don't need this. But she just kept loving it and just enjoying the attention, even if it was physical. So, you know, that was very disturbing for me to see that. I didn't see anything like that before, nor did I have a relationship that would go as deep as this one, which in the end wasn't very deep. It was just superficial in the end anyway, but I didn't know it at the time. And listening to tracks like that, I know exactly what... I remember those days. I remember how I felt, how I got um, so angry, almost rageful because of jealousy, and I just couldn't understand why someone would do that. Very naive, of course, for me. I know, I know. I was very young at the time. What do you want from me, right? And I felt jealous many times afterwards. But during that time when jealousy was my first experience, I could barely control it. It got really emotional for me to a point where I thought I'm losing something valuable in my life. But today I know I didn't. And I was never about to lose anything valuable at the time. I had no idea. But the, the problem is the emotion that you go through, what you're suffering through to making sense of what it is that you witnessed and what you feel, that is what's driving us around the bench. And it's, it gets, of course, a lot worse, especially for me uh, later when she actually officially 
betrayed me and had sex with someone else. That was like the one point where I almost snapped completely. So in case you were, you know, overreacting to my speech just from that boat party by saying, oh yeah, she just had a little bit of attention, there's nothing to worry about. That was like a warning signal that this would happen more often in the future up to a point where she would just spread her legs for someone else, not giving a fuck about what I feel. And being young and naive, I thought I might be able to deal with with stuff like that because it's not the end of the world. But emotionally, it is for you once you realize that it actually did happen and what it means to you in in, in that time. And you don't know how to respond, really, aside from being pissed off and disappointed. You know, and it's... uh, I think the song is just beautiful addressing these issues. And I can't say it enough. I love being single. Well, then we jump over to um, Lay Your Hands on Me. But before that, I think we could mention at least the um, groundbreaking Shock the Monkey music video, which personally I loved watching more than listening to the song itself. Um, I think Shock the Monkey is a darker music video than the light-hearted Sledgehammer, even though Sledgehammer has the most significant special effects being made, stop-motion-wise, for music videos in general, which has never been done before. But um, Shock the Monkey is depicting a very obscure way, visually, of depicting jealousy, which I think the music video doesn't really do. In any way, the music video is a completely different experience from what the song is actually telling you. And because, you know, you see rageful monkeys in the music video, uh, people really often don't know what to think of the music video and think it's more uh, gaining attention to uh, experiments on animals and animal rights, which is sweet and all that. I do like that, but it's the wrong connection to the song. Um... Yeah, anyway, uh, one of my favorite moments of the music video is where he's actually in this white, um, weird makeup, where you just see him in a white suit, I think, uh, dancing weirdly or moving weirdly. Peter doesn't dance, by the way. Moving weirdly in this music video where the room is becoming uh, smaller, where the ceiling is coming down or something, and the lamps are moving by themselves. It's... um, it's as if he's living in a different world, in a Celtic world that never really existed the way it does, and, and at least in the video. And it's like a dream sequence, really, more than anything else. And it's beautifully done. It's one of my favorite segments, as well as um, a, a, um, a pond shot where Peter is standing in a pond with his suit on, with you know, waving his hands in the air, with his head in, in back in his neck. Uh, screaming in the air, shock the monkey. And uh, the way it's been photographed and filmed in this really uh, intense black and white image is also beautiful. I love that shot a lot. It's um, You have to see the music video. If, if you've never seen it, it's really a piece of art on its own. Then you got Lay Your Hands on Me, where the infamous crowd surfing took place. Um, 
if you want to see that in its full glory, how fans, of course, you know, freaked the fuck out when he did that on stage, was during the So Tour. That was just phenomenal. That was just really close to being dangerous, almost, where he started choking on his, his clothing because he lost many, many white fluffy jackets during that time. Uh, which might have been maybe better to just, you know, skip the jacket entirely and just dive down, you know, half naked into the crowd. Might have been better. But um, Lay Your Hands on Me is not really necessarily a favorite of mine, but there is an Italian TV uh, version of that, that song where he performed... Not live, I think it wasn't recorded live. Shock the Monkey was performed for the TV broadcast on some Italy television station. I don't know which one it was. And unfortunately, we only have rather poor quality of the recording. But the most beautiful thing about it, uh, when Lay Your Hands on Me was, was played, there is a completely different vocal remix of that song available online. And with background vocals so chilling so creepy at the same time and beautiful that it gives this song a much richer artistic aspect to it, something that really blows me away and I like listening to over and over again. For me personally, that is the best version I have ever heard of Lay Your Hands On Me. Uh, even if it's groundbreakingly cool being played live, um, it's that version is really just, it haunts me to this day, and I wish I could get a solid, clean, uh, polished copy of that remix. If anyone would be capable of doing that, or maybe Peter himself with his 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 um, his mates at Real World Records, if they could actually get access to that track, I, w- I would buy it instantly, no matter how much it costs. It's that good. If I uh, don't forget, I'm going to add a link to that track um, in in my in my podcast for you to enjoy and check out. Well, then you have the subtle and very... uh, It's a more political song, I think, about... To me, it's more like being stuck in in an insane asylum, but I think it's more uh, based on political... uh, being arrested for political reasons, political custody or something like that. Uh, The track Wallflower, which is a very gentle track, but there is a better version of Wallflower than the one on the album. The album version is fine, but I think the way he sings it is a little bit over the top with his vocals. It's not my favorite from the whole bunch. It's a beautiful song, don't get me wrong. But the way it's being transmitted to you emotionally has a larger weight in his... Uh, there's a solo piano version on YouTube that he... Uh, maybe he himself or someone else uploaded. And it's, for me personally, the best version of the track. And it's, I think it's also been, been played once or twice during the New Blood tour when he was with the... Uh, with that London orchestra walking around, doing a, a bunch of cover tracks and, of course, tracks of his own album, um, which is also an, an, an interesting experience, but the album didn't got sold that well. I mean, there are many reasons why, I suppose. 
but I'll leave that open to another time. Then there's the track, the last one on the album, uh, Kiss of Life, which is surprisingly the, the only song from my previous girlfriends, the only song that got the most positive feedback from the women because of being very fast and louder than the other tracks, being more more energetic, I think, about that. Oh, I'm sorry. If you hear it, if you heard that crack, that was my my vertebrae. They, something is wrong there. Mm. Kiss of Life is a track that is. There is a rare recording of it live during those days, and it was also uploaded on Peter Gabriel's uh, YouTube channel, where you can fully enjoy that recording. The recording is pretty solid. And it is, again, I have to say live, the best version of this track. I think the album version is okay. I do listen to it sometimes, but for some reason it's not really exactly uh, um, mind-blowing or anything. I'm not even sure what it, what it really means in the song, and I don't want to dive into the lyrics again. I think it's a, I have to be in the right mood to listen to that track. That's the point. That's probably the, probably the best way for me to say it. Overall, the album is a welcome, refreshing, re- refreshing, not refreshing. I didn't have enough wine, I suppose. It's a refreshing new start in a direction that Gabriel probably was desperately looking for to enhance his, his craft, to become, again, different from what he did before and different from everyone else, still influencing the music industry heavily, especially with his uh, way of using samples into his music, which obviously other artists have done the same. But, you know, he, he laid the groundwork, I think. He did really a marvelous job creating this album, producing it at least. And the performance overall is, is wonderful. It's not perfect, to be fair, but it's beautifully done. And it's an album that I like to revisit time and time again, especially listening to tracks like Rhythm of the Heat and Shock the Monkey more often. I think one of my favorites from today's point of view and in different performances over the years and versions of it is probably Wallflower. Uh, Shock the Monkey is one of my favorites overall, I have to admit that, and San Jacinto, which is a song I have listened to at least a gazillion times. It's really, it's very haunting and uh, hypnotic. I like hypnotic music and drone-like music. I think San Jacinto comes close to a combination of looping sounds that would be recognized as ambient music today, I guess. At least it sets uh, the tone right by by creating music like that and then adding, of course, the lyrics to it. And uh, especially towards the end when it becomes more dramatic emotionally which is um, the highlight of the song, nonetheless. These tracks being performed during, um, during his live events, that's when he... When, when you hear the, the, the uh, double album, the double LP or CD or whatever you have, of Peter Plays Live, it resembles really the ultimate power that he can deliver by performing these songs, not only vocally, but also stage presence-wise. 
And it's a shame that we can't see it to actually to live it and believe it. But I can only, I envy the people who actually attended these concerts and could witness the amazing performance that he probably uh, threw out the window there just by being everywhere on stage because Peter is somebody who, who really can't stop moving around. In today's point of view, you know, he's in his 70s, so I think he has, um, he pulled the brakes there. He's not, he's not in his 20s, he's not in his 30s anymore. Stamina is probably a bit low, and I don't expect him to be jumping around in his 70s performing like a rock god, so forget that. But his voice is still there, and I'm looking forward to more material that he's hopefully going to put out sometime in the near future. And if you want to get back in time and take a look at what his performance was like, what it sounded like, uh, the, the Plays Live record is a pretty good example of how good some of the older songs can be, especially his tracks from his second album, which are, for me personally, unbearable to listen to on the, the album itself. The production, like I mentioned, is not exactly clean, nor is it all the way through professionally done or mixed. But live performing these songs is a completely different thing. And I'm glad about that, because it, it adds more value to what these songs represent in the end. And I'm glad that he did that. And why wouldn't he? As an artist, he wants to show his, his craft, right? He wants to share it with the world. So either you do it right and you do it really cool on stage, or you try making an album and you have to you know, admit this was a well attempt, but it wasn't really done to everyone's expectations and satisfyingly. So um, this is a refreshing new thing to listen to when, you, when you're familiar with the old tracks and you listen to the live performances. It really worlds apart there. And Shock the Monkey is beautifully live. Absolutely. So is the Rhythm of the Heat, which has been also uh, performed quite a number of times. Sonia Sinto, just the same. I Have the Touch Live is also a, a slightly better than the album version, I would say, but it's not really something that, again, also performance-wise, blows me away. It's not a song I can feel really connected to, even if the lyrics are great, but, you know, it's just, it's not my thing. There is a better version of that one, of the song, um, from the top of my head, I can't tell you exactly what kind of version it is and who mixed it, but there's a completely different guitar riff on that, on that track. And there is that remix that I'm talking about was used for the John Travolta film Phenomenon on the soundtrack. That to me personally is the best I have the touch, uh, version there is. I might as well put that in here. Um, again, I am not trying to, uh, to trash the album in any way, but I'm trying to be fair by critically, you know, analyzing this. The songs are all great, but sound-wise and with emotional weight and more progress in, in music creation development, I think he added more quality to those songs with the piano version of Wallflower just like he added an, an amazing power and emotional importance. And here comes the flood from the first album. Um, you have a much more powerful performance of uh, the, the Family and the Fishing Net live, especially than these remixed versions of I Have the Touch, are also significantly, at least from my personal taste, 
subjectively speaking, better than what the album version provides. I think the album version, we're talking about 1982 here, okay? We're still quite a good step away of the groundbreaking So album, yet alone the very personal reflective album Us, which is my absolute favorite. And I can, I hope I can at least convey my thoughts with that album the, the, the most and the best because it's the one album that keeps following me side by side, supporting me in my own life, where I can identify myself with more accurately and truthfully than in most of his other, his, his other works and albums, aside from the Up album, which is also of almost unique um, emotional value and quality, I, I would say. But the Us album is just, whew, that's my uh, number one favorite uh, of, of, of all things he ever did. And, um, well, the, the, um, the, 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 the Security album, as it's called, the number four, is a, a steady progress forward, that for sure. There is no doubt. You can hear um, the, the creativity from this album jumping leaps forward in comparison to the previous three, even though the tracks are creative in their own right. But as a whole, as a final piece, when everything got mixed and the, the album got published, we're, we're starting to feel the real Gabriel touch here. And his tone and taste in music and his interests in exploration from that album out forward. I think it started maybe with the third album, but in, in the third he was looking for more attention, I think. You know, shedding some light on his personal thoughts and... Uh, way of exploring music, and the fourth one really is setting the tone, then number five coming to his superstar status with all the other tracks, which is more rock-oriented, I think, than pop, to be honest. But that's probably just because I like the song Red Rain so much, like many other people do. It's still under underappreciated, I think, that song. But that's another story. It's uh, maybe too melodramatic for many, but I think this is exactly what Gabriel does best by being melodramatic and very emotional, which uh, this song is a landmark for his his style, I would say. It's like a signature of his, his professionalism in making serious, uh, cerebral-provoking songs. Not just... Happy songs where people jump on stage and sing all the time, I love you, baby, yeah, 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 and all that kind of crap. I hate, I hate songs like that, and if anybody sings about love the best, it's still Lionel Richie. I am sorry, but, you know, if cheesiness would win an award, he would get the biggest cheesecake of all, just because of his songs. I like Lionel Richie a lot, but, you know, he has a way of, of conveying his emotions into, towards love and relationships uh, into, well, maybe less relationships, more on the actual part of loving or falling in love, the butterfly feelings and all the, all the cheesiness in those songs. And you think he does it the best, really. And it's, it's a different kind of music, I know, but credit where credit is due, that's one of his best crafts. Any, anyway... Um, when it comes to to listening to uh, Peter Plays Live, there was one track that was never found on, on on an album anywhere. I don't even think it's 
found as a B-side track, but it could be wrong. It might be somewhere hidden on, on a single that I've never bought. Because I have a huge collection, but I don't have physically everything that was published. Um, it also gets too expensive over time to collect that kind of stuff. Today you can get these CDs much cheaper, but some of them have a, a great, tremendous collective value. I have a record, for example, which is uh, called... I think that it has a title similar to Games Without Frontiers or something, or Sound Without Frontiers, something like that. And it's basically just a record with demos. Nothing else, just demos. For the hardcore fan, you find interesting sounds there that you haven't heard before. And I wanted to buy this record and it cost me 50 bucks. I don't care. I just want to have it. And if I get my head around it to repair the, uh, the needle on my record player, hopefully it still works, then I can connect that to the stereo and blast the old LP to uh, smithereens, try to get that sound out of it. Um, yeah, what I wanted to say is there's a, there's a track plays live called, um, let me, let me guess, my memory is, is, is eluding me. Uh, it's about water. Let me, let me check for the time. I can't remember. I am sorry. I have to take a short break to look at it. I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. Man, this is convenient, isn't it? It's the track I Go Swimming. I couldn't remember the name. I'm getting old, man. So is my dad, by the way, but he's doing fine. Okay, that was the last sip of my wine. I'll skip alcohol for <clears throat> for maybe an hour or two. Because <laughs> I got to cook, too. I just I had a gigantic breakfast. I keep stretching and pulling the rest of it from the table and eating it over the course of this day. While I'm still writing my novel, I have done some progress here. Uh, but not far enough. I have to keep working tonight. Um, I Go Swimming is a very simple song, which is something that many fans had problems with listening to. So did I when I heard it the first time, thinking to myself, why did you do that song? What's the purpose of it? You know, I was expecting something more meaningful, more, you know, mysterious lyrics again, or something that he conveys emotionally very well. But this is just a song about water and how, how much you love swimming and all that kind of stuff. And that's it. That's the whole fucking thing. And of course, you can interpret much more meaning into the song if you want to, but there's no point of doing that, really. It's, it's just one of these phenomenons, a, a, a simple, um, shortly developed song, something that was written like in a day or two, and he performed it because it was fun to do. And I think it's, it's, it's this thing that some artists need to do to just break out of their cycle of creativity by doing something completely different and then jumping back into their own world of uh, deep emotional exploring. And I think that is one of those things that he did, just being out there enjoying himself instead of thinking or overthinking the miserable, miserable white man lifestyle. Or like he says himself, it is another miserable white man song like uh, San Jacinto. And he's good at saying stuff like that. He, he, does, he has a bloody mind in regards to his own work and what he sees in life, I suppose. But 
It's one of these things that we fans really enjoy about him. That being said, I'm over an hour in that I would uh, th- think that I should dive into the live performance of, lay- of not Lay Your Hands on Me, but on, on the Plays Live album to highlight what is really memorable and something something that I enjoyed the most on the album. But I think I'll get back to that at some some later time during the weeks, maybe in my vacation, I don't know. I'd like to stop uh, with a closing uh, story. You remember, maybe, if you've been listening to my other bullshit that I've been uttering uh, online in the uh, vast space of, of the, the World Wide Web, I was talking about Michael, this old friend of mine who was uh, living a very sad, depressing life with a super strong religious Christian woman, manipulating his life and pushing him into a corner where he doesn't want to be in, and he's thinking about divorce. And personally, I would really recommend him to get divorced. It's, I know it's, it's a nasty thing to say in the end, but from the information I have so far, it is the only solution for a guy like him because he will never be happy. It's impossible, absolutely impossible. The life that she's living is not a life that he can have or that he can be a part of. So it's really uh, surprising how much patience he brought to the table, uh, letting himself be stirred and directed into so many different directions just to please a woman that is so fucking in love with Jesus Christ that that is the only thing that she's thinking of. Now, you can say whatever you want about religion. I personally am not a friend of religion per se, but I understand if someone is individually interested in some kind of spiritual form religious belief of any kind, it doesn't matter. If it helps you become who you want to be or who you feel personally you are in the end and you're looking maybe for something to uh, express yourself with or identify yourself with by feeling to be one with, maybe not the universe, but being one with an idealistic mindset that someone might have introduced you to or something that you have discovered by yourself and you think that's you, that is a part of you, then you want to believe. Okay, if it makes sense to you, fine. That's cool, you can do all that. But you have no right to force other people to believe the same stuff. I'd rather say the contrary, that someone, which is actually weird, People like atheists get a lot of heap and a lot of criticism by being just completely disbelief, uh, disbelieving anything that the Bible has to offer or religion per se or any idea of a supernatural God. And I say that, you know, they, dis- they compare both worlds, which is not necessarily possible. At least logically speaking, it's not possible. You can compare religions to one another by trying to find similarities. But an atheist, and for the sake of the argument, I don't want to dwell too long in this topic. It's, it's just something that popped into my head. For the sake of the argument, atheism is not a religion. And many people have done the mistake by calling atheism a form of religion that is trying to affect other people by claiming to open their minds. Um, the last thing is probably true. There are some people out there trying to promote atheism which I think they have the right to do, just like religious people are promoting their religion. But atheism is not a religion. 
by just not believing something does not mean that you have a form of religion. Religion is always referred to something that you believe in, any kind of belief or faith that you're practicing. And atheism has nothing to do with faith. It has just something to do with dismissing all of that and just saying to yourself, I do not believe because I don't need it or I don't want to. Or, there is no logic in it. I can't find the sense of it. There is no evidence, whatever. You know, there could be so many different things. If your mind tells you that you don't really fit that universe into your head and that you cannot see the logic there, then it's fine. Then you don't have to. And I think it's pitiful that some people are trying to force you to, to, to think otherwise by, by claiming that... Um, there is only one God, and that is the Christian God. That's just as false as saying that uh, those who do not believe are sinners and will, you know, f- 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 land in hell and and, and burn in, in the hellfires for all eternity and suffer from their disbelief and and treachery towards God. That is something that you know Michael's wife is believing. That is the the form of religious madness that she's involved in. And you cannot, you really cannot argue with a mind like that. You cannot do that. That is a sentence that Richard Dawkins once said, uh, one of the world's most famous atheists, by the way. Uh, Richard Dawkins said, in case you don't know who that is, he's, he's a, I think he's a biologist, by all means, and he uh, wrote a couple of books and one um, Darwinism, I think. He, uh, Charles Darwin was one of his, his idols, and he, he covered a book about uh, the, uh, the theory of evolution and how important that is. And I do believe he's right. Um, maybe, you know, the book of evolution or the, yeah, the topic evolution itself, it's probably not the, the, the one thing that defines all, but based on scientific evidence, it is truly logically possible to get your mind through that and understanding what evolution actually means and not just you know imagining in your head okay yesterday there was a duck and the next day there was um half dog half duck creature that's not the way it works okay (laughs) that is not evolution then you haven't understood the purpose of evolution and what it means what it scientifically means okay or at least the cycle of ever going change through generations of species to come. That is a number that people have trouble grasping and understanding the, the agonizing length of years of change involved in deciding, not just by chance really, but deciding which of these species have a chance of survival if they are strong enough to survive. If they can survive, if nothing else happens, like you know, a meteor crashes on Earth and something something larger happens, higher power just destroys half of the planet. Okay, that's a different thing. But under natural circumstances, in the natural habitat of things, if if a, if a creature is 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 capable of surviving because of the skills it has, there you go. It's one of the keys and the key elements of why evolution works. But understanding that is a different topic and making a religious, a strongly religious Christian or any other person uh, realize the value of that theory um, is almost impossible to explain, at least to some of those who want to stay blind towards this kind of knowledge and just dismiss it altogether and say, no, it's, it's completely false, it's not accurate because the scripture tells me different. That is the point where, you know, um, Charles Darwin, 
uh, not Darwin, um, <laughs> um, Richard Dawkins said, you cannot argue with a mind like that when someone says, I know that there are things like um, the teachings and the, the, the studies of science as a whole. There's evolution, there's biology, there are uh, these things being discovered, that being discovered. We have a wide ver a variety of knowledge in terms of ge geography and history, making sense of how the world probably came to be. And if they say, we, all, we know that this is existing, we know that there is stuff like that. But I believe the Bible because that is what the Holy Scripture teaches me. And that is exactly the problem. That is so humongously problematic in a modern day and age, let's say, to how can you teach someone anything new, anything that has been discovered, anything that, you, that there's so much evidence for, uh, no matter if it's technology or, or, or biology as a whole or new uh, things that have been discovered, medical progress, anything. How can you teach someone something new and fully understanding it if the mind is blocked by believing scripture comes first? That is something that is scaring me, to be honest. And looking and listening to what Michael is saying, I just, what the fuck was he thinking? Jumping into a family like that. You know, it's just, he's suffering from it severely. And right now he... He broke off contact. It's like he he just vanished from the face of the earth. Now I don't think that she killed him, but you know, as usual, he has no real, real time, and he's very clumsy in keeping his dates together. Or you know, if he never keeps his word when he's trying to get in contact with with someone, I think he just realized that it doesn't make any sense, even if he does talk to me or not. He's just he's stuck on his own. I can't go down there and tell him to. You know, just swipe everything that happened and erase those experiences and the marriage. That's not possible. He has to face the consequences. If he gets a divorce, it's going to be expensive. If he does that, he's going to go down for a while. He's going to be suffering from that just the same. And I can only imagine how bad his wife is going to turn this around on him by even, um, you know, if, if, if she's a diehard Christian like he says she is, then how can she actually tolerate divorce? How could she? I mean, from her point of view, she would have sinned just the same because marriage is, is, is holy, right? It cannot be broken or shouldn't be. Until death do us part. So if, if he says, look, I can't live like this, I want a divorce, what does she do? So he failed then in her point of view, I would assume. That's the only logical conclusion I can make from this. He failed according to her. So that is something that I'm, I'm, I don't want to be uh, evil about this, but I'm looking forward to this kind of development because I cannot believe for a second that she has enough common sense to, uh, to divorce in peace. It will be a fight. It's going to be a bloody one. It's going to be one of these, you know, all-time favorite family wars that nobody wants to see, but everybody is known has known or at least heard of somehow where movies are being made of and and dramas being written you know and michael is in the middle of all of that and just experiencing the same stuff so i assume it's going to take a long time until i get new information on this development 
And maybe it's going to be really bad. Maybe it's going to be more positive and you found a way to coexist with her. But I seriously doubt that. If a woman like that seriously says to him, we can go to group therapy, but only if the therapist is Christian. Fuck you. That is just the most dumbest thing anyone could have ever uttered. So, it's good to get that out of my chest. <laughs> just wanted to say that. I like mixing personal stories with everything else I've been talking about. It's always a fun experience. And uh, it feels like I can share the insanity of life with other people online. You know, how crazy everything becomes. And we're just supposed to take it in and swallow it. My own personal experience, of course. Then you got people like Michael with his experience. Um, there's so many weird and bizarre elements to life that seems so extreme. And it all comes down to a point where I believe that we people are just behaving like children and will never be anything else but that. I think sophistication in society is yet to come. We're really far away from that. But that's a different story and I can make a case for myself and I claim that I, could like, that I would like to address at some point in the future. Up until then, I'll stick to Peter Gabriel's albums which I still enjoy heavily. Um, uh, next next stop, I'm going to jump into Plays Live and then go right to the So album and uh, dive down deep into personal experiences from the album and then, of course, live concerts and stuff like that. And um, the power and the influence this album still has today, which I'm very thankful for myself and I think Peter still is too, like every artist would be. I, I suppose, to some point at least, you know, to some extent. Up until then, I want to focus on some of my work here, maybe maybe drawing something, I don't know. I have yet to decide. And I'm also uh, looking forward to Peter Gabriel's birthday, uh, which is, I think, celebrated on Facebook uh, this time around. It's the 13th of February this month, just a few days ahead. And uh, I think there's a, a Facebook group that you could join that deals with everything Gabriel-related. Rela Lots of material, all sorts of videos being, being pushed out and, and shared and all that kind of stuff. And I think that the... Um, I think Warren is his name. I think he's planning something for Gabriel's birthday. But... Uh, since nobody is listening to my channel, I can at least, you know, at least not many people do. I can at least openly talk about it without spoiling anything because the chance is pretty low that anyone is going to know anything about this. Except for those who are sticking in the uh, uh, Facebook group, the fan group. Uh, let's see. You know, maybe somebody cares about this stuff and sends it out to Gabriel himself. Um, I might report on that when the time comes. Maybe I can get something together that I'd like to share with the rest of the group. Who knows? Until then, I wish you all the best. Stay healthy, stay cool, and be kind. And uh, always enjoy a good wine and whiskey. See you then. Take care and bye-bye.